Well, we are glad that you're here today. So many great things going on around this place. So many great people part of this church. And I am honored that you're here today with us. We're jumping back into our series called Leading the Ones That We Love. Now, we started this series several weeks ago, and it might seem like it's gone on forever because we had Contribute Sunday in the middle of this, and we had Baptism Sunday in the middle of this, and we're still going. We have one more week after this, after today before we wrap this series up. But it's all about leading the people that we love. And that could be a spouse, it could be a friend, it could be kids, but it's all about impacting the people around us, right? So most of us have felt a desire at one time in our lives to, to be able to just pour in to the people that we love. We want to pour in to the next generation coming behind us. And that might be nieces, it might be nephews, it might be kids in your neighborhood, it might be your own kids, but we want to pour in to those, those young people because they are the coming generation, they are the generation that's here, and we don't want to leave them without some hope and some, some guidance coming through. But that's a challenge because most of us have never been trained in how to lead the next generation, right? Now, we might naturally love them and share some Jesus things with them and be there for them, and those things are vital, but it's hard because we've never been taught how to do that. But all of us want them to find this incredible life that God has prepared for them. I don't think any of us don't want that for the next generations coming up because we just do. We want them to find happiness and health and, and to be loving and kind and hardworking and respectful. We all want those things for, for this next generation. But our top priority, again, for the kids is always that God is that North Star, that top priority, that main thing. Because when God is there, everything else flows out of that. Everything that we want for them and everything that we hope for them and everything that we desire for them to be flows out of godliness. I mean, when you're godly, you get to live out Galatians 5 that we've talked about a lot, which is you get love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Do you not want your kids to have any of those? I want my kids to have all of those. I wanted my kids to gain all of those things because of the relationship with Jesus. They have access to all of those. And that's not only true for the kids and the young people around us. Last week, we talked about that being true with our spouses, right? We want our spouses to be able to, to have this, this life-giving relationship with Jesus, which pours in to our marriages. And we want our spouses to have a little bit of love, Anybody here want a marriage without love? Just asking. Some of you are going, that's exactly what I've got. You can change that, by the way. All right? You don't have to stay in that mode. You stay with that person, but you can change the love that's in a relationship. Anybody wants a little joy in your marriage? How about a little peace? <laughs> Somebody say amen to that one, please. Yes. We, we want that one, right? We want some peace there. Patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things are vital for a good marriage, and we want to pour those things back into a good marriage. And when God is the center of the marriage, all those things get to come with that. And that's not only true for our kids and our marriages, but it's also true for our friendships. 
If your friendships don't have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, then why are they your friendships? Why are they there? Now, you might be there because they've been long-lasting friends and you've got something to pour into their lives and they have something to pour into yours, but you want to present all those things in a friendship. You want to be that kind of friend. We want to be Galatians 5 friends to our friends, right? The people we're doing life with, the people that we love, the people we, re- we respect. Do you have someone in your life who has been a mentor to you? Someone who took the time to teach you, to show you, to love you, to walk with you through some things. Anybody have someone like that in your life? Yeah, some of you do. It's really, really needed. And so as you look at your your friendships and the mentors that are in your life, it reminded me because on Thursday night, I watched the New England Patriots crush the Pittsburgh Steelers in football. Yeah, you can clap to that one. Our team is really bad, by the way. I'm just saying, the Steelers are horrible. Anyway, you should clap to that too. I got it, whatever. Anyway, I watched the New England Patriots crush the, the Steelers, and it reminded me of a great mentor story that I had read a few years ago. The New England Patriots began the 2002 season And they were a group of mostly average football players. No one expected a whole lot from them that year. And four games into their season, their all-pro quarterback, Drew Bledsoe, got injured, couldn't play for the rest of the season. And at that point, their record was one win, three losses. So guess what happens? 23-year-old rookie Tom Brady, the replacement for Drew Bledsoe, who, you know, came into the game. He didn't look too promising. The Patriots didn't look too promising. As a matter of fact, Vegas set the odds for the Patriots to win the Super Bowl at 10,000 to 1 at that point. You know, some of you know who Tom Brady is. If you don't, you should. Anyway, not that I like him, but I respect, you know, what he's done. The Patriots overcame 10,000 to 1 odds to do what? to win the Super Bowl in 2002, all right, 10,000 to 1, and there were a lot of reasons for that happening, you can look back on that year and say, well, it was because of their coach, Bill Belichick, now Belichick is an amazing coach, he's still the coach of the Patriots, he's an amazing, amazing Hall of Fame coach, some people look at Tom Brady as the reason for their success, and there's a lot of truth to that, he is the single greatest quarterback of all time in the NFL. There's no question about it, right? So that had a lot to do with it. Other people say, well, it was just a team effort. They all kind of pulled together after Bledsoe got hurt. I think those reasons are all true, but there's one more significant reason that people tend to overlook with this. And that reason is Drew Bledsoe, the former quarterback, all-pro quarterback that got hurt. And you're thinking, wait, he sat on the sidelines. What's he have to do with winning any, any games for them? But it was more than that, because Bledsoe decided that as Brady was leading the team, Bledsoe was going to pour into Brady. He was going to mentor him. He was going to disciple him. He was going to work with him. He was going to help him in any way that he could. And even later in the season, when Bledsoe got healthy and he was told, uh, Brady's our quarterback, you're not going to play anymore, he didn't take that like, I'm going to whine and cry and complain. He just simply said, I'm going to pour into Tom Brady 
everything that I can pour into him. I don't want him to make the same mistakes, the rookie mistakes that I made. I'm going to mentor him. I'm going to be there for him. And maybe that was a big reason that Tom Brady not only helped them win the 2002 Super Bowl, but maybe the reason Brady has become the best of all time as an NFL quarterback. Who is it in your life that has made a significant impact on who you are today? Can you think of one people or or maybe two or three or four people in your life? I was talking to my son, Zach, and he said for him it was a high school teacher named Mr. Janigan. He said Janigan shared his life experiences and he mentored us as students. He said Janigan told them and he lived out things like this, leaders pick up trash. He said, I can't walk anywhere and see something on the ground without having to bend down and pick it up and throw it in a trash can. That's a good mentor-type relationship, right? I mean, it's great for all of us to learn and for all of us to do. And he said, he just kind of lived that out. Here's another thing that he taught him. He said, it costs zero dollars to be a decent human being. Zero. Now, I don't know that's just a teacher kind of saying, I think that's just wisdom. Right? There's a whole lot of people that can be not decent individuals for multitudes of reasons, but it costs zero dollars to be a decent individual? How true is that? And living that out in your life, those are great life lessons. I have so many people in my life that have been mentors to me or disciplers for me. First of all, I had an incredible dad. I mean, he was phenomenal. And I had a great relationship with him. We had great communication, and life was good with him. I could ask him anything. He was a good leader. He, he, he taught me well, and, and that's obviously important for me. A second guy was a guy named Wes Stepp. Wes was a former Cincinnati Bengals football player, and when I was in high school, he was a friend of our family. When I was in high school, uh, my dad had him take me around to four different Bible colleges, he was in ministry at that point doing some mission work, and so he drove me to Kentucky Christian College and Johnson and Milligan in Tennessee and Cincinnati uh, Bible College in Ohio. He spent mass amounts of time with me, just mentoring me in those kind of ways. He was also the person that took me on my first mission trip to Portugal. So we went to Lisbon, and we did some other things in the city of of the capital city there in Portugal and just ministered to some of the homeless people and some of the needy. It, it, was, it was a relationship I cannot thank God enough for because it prepared me and he continued to prepare me for ministry later. Another one is a guy named Jeff Metzger who's uh, just stepped down as the lead pastor at River Hills Church on the east side of Cincinnati. Jeff and I have done ministry together for, for 25, 26, 27 years and He's a church planter, and he's a leader, and he's a little bit older than I am, and, and we were good friends, we were ministry partners, but more than that, he was a mentor to me. He poured into my life. He taught me things I would have never learned. He prepared me for things that I had never thought about, and those things are vital in my life today, and I'm, I'm kind of outing myself on this. Here's a couple other guys that are currently in that role for me right now, and they don't even realize it. Jim and Sean I go to breakfast with all the time, and they're in this service, as a matter of fact, and we go to breakfast, and my goal with that breakfast was somebody that was a step ahead of me, 
that spiritually they're into the Emmaus Walk Ministries and things that happen to that. And the things that I learned, a step ahead of me spiritually, a step ahead of me just, just in life, they're both retired, their, their lives have had different twists and turns. And the things that I learned just by sitting and talking with them, it amazes me. And that's a mentorship type relationship. Now you guys know, so now you have to treat me differently. Okay, here we go. Let's look at how Jesus kind of lived this mentor discipleship process in his life. Because he's the one that we learn from. He's the teacher. He's the one that set this whole thing up. And it's really important for us to be able to get this. Are you ready? Let's look how the friendships work and, and how he creates these moments of discipleship and mentoring in his life. Matthew 4 says this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Do you see what Jesus just did right there? Right? He looks at these guys, and he starts talking about something that they understood. He starts talking about something that they knew how to do, that they were good at. And he used it to make not just a physical friendship point, but a spiritual connection as well, and to challenge them as well. At once they left their nets, followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus making connection points to build relationships and friendships with the people around him. Anybody else here like to fish? Let me see your hands. Yeah, some of you do. All right. You know, I, I'm not a big fisherman, but I do like to fish. And when I was a kid growing up, I was a diabetic since I was eight years old. So been on insulin, you know, kind of treated with kid gloves by all my family and and those kind of people, they treated me very carefully because they didn't want me to get hurt, my aunts, uncles, cousins. They didn't want me to get hurt or have an issue, you know, in case we were kind of out in the woods doing something like that. And, and, and they, I, I kind of felt like I was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I got left out of all the, the fun reindeer games, right? You know, they're all having fun, and I'm kind of stuck, stuck inside with the adults, which was not fun, by the way, as a kid, right? So they're hunting and fishing. Maybe it was just the fact that they were scared to death that my mother would have destroyed them if anything happened to me. You know, I was her little boy. Nobody touched me. Anyway, that's another story. Anyway, I had one uncle that always made sure that I got to do the things that maybe everybody else in the family was doing. He intentionally took me hunting. He intentionally took me fishing. He, he did those kind of things for me. And he's a great fisherman. And, and it took a while for me to catch on, but I watched and I learned because he knew the correct ways to do it, right? He knew how to bait the hooks and he knew the correct times of day to fish and the times of year and where they would be and how they would be biting and, and how to set the... He was an expert at all that. And he used to love to fish the old strip mines. Now, I grew up about four hours from here and, and that was in a little town called Caddis, Ohio, which is you know Cambridge going up 70, that direction. Anyway, there are a lot of coal mines in that area. And a lot of strip mines. So they would come in with big, heavy equipment. 
dozers, shovels, and they would tear down the ground, dig down in, sometimes a couple hundred feet or 300 feet, 400 feet, just to strip the coal off of the surface type areas. And they would go back in and then, and, and then they would replant the areas with trees and grass. And, but there were always deep, deep mine pits there where it would fill with water. They would stock it with fish. And that's where he used to love to fish. And so you'd have to walk two or three or four or five or ten miles off of a main roadway to get back to these things. But that's where I learned from him. I mean, he showed me how to bait the hook. Not real fond of baiting a hook even today, but... You know, he showed me how to do that. He showed me how to cast a line. He showed me how to reel in very slowly, depending on the bait that I had. He, he, he told me, you know, and showed me how to, how to hook the fish whenever one was biting and how not to set whenever, not to pull back too hard whenever. Anyway, he taught me all of that. But when I was 12 years old, we're fishing one of these, these strip mines. And as a 12-year-old, I caught the biggest largemouth bass that I had ever seen. It was four and a half pounds. Now, that's not massive, but that's big for a 12-year-old. You know, and I'm reeling that thing in. It took me about 15 minutes to, to, to get it in. But, but that was just a great moment for me with my uncle. And it was all because he was willing to mentor me and disciple me in a relationship, family-type setting. He wasn't afraid to do that. How are your relationships inside of your family with maybe some of the people that need you to be there as a mentor for them. Think about that. Jesus mentored and discipled people all the time. In John 6, 3, he says this, Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples, the talking and the sharing and the communicating together in those moments is a huge factor in mentoring anybody, right? They go up, they sit down, and they start talking. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, what he's doing is he's challenging Philip, right? He doesn't really want to know because he knows what's getting ready to happen, but he's challenging Philip to think outside the box. He's challenging him to take a good look around him. He's challenging him to trust He's challenging him to think. And he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. That's pretty observant, right? You start looking at the world around you, maybe in a different kind of way. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. How far will they go among so many people? There's another great discipleship mentoring moment. He's going, okay, we've got, we've got five and three, right? You know how many people they had there? About 50,000 people. No, not that many. How many? Anybody know? 3,000 5,000, we get the men, women, and children in there. You're probably at seven, 8,000 type people all sitting down together, coming to listen to Jesus speak. And his disciples are trying to go, all these people are here, what do we do? So they all sit down on the hillside. Jesus took the loaves, he took the fish. Again, another discipleship moment, and he blesses them. 
So that God provide for everyone. And then God starts providing. Right? He starts providing. When Scripture says, when they had all eaten as much as they wanted, he did the same thing with their fish. And then they all had enough to eat. He said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. During this miracle, the disciples were learning how to serve. They they were learning how to, to look at people and see people in a different way. They were looking that something that seemed impossible wasn't impossible with God. They were learning all these life lessons in the middle of this one miracle, this one teaching moment with Jesus. What have you learned lately from somebody around you? There are things every day that we can learn. There are moments in every conversation, in every relationship, in every experience that we have that we can learn from and draw from and use in our lives. Well, Jesus modeled these intentional actions in his relationship with people, and he gave the disciples hands-on experience in learning how to care for the people around them. He just didn't have them sit back and say, hey, guys, watch me. I'm going to take care of this. It's not what Jesus did. He didn't say, you sit down and you watch what I do because, you know, maybe someday you want to get up and do something. That's not what he did. He said, get up. We're doing this together. Let's go. You know, get up. You take this. You take these loaves. You take these fish. You get out there. You start passing them out to the people. And guess what? As they started doing that, and as Jesus was leading them in that, they got such an incredible growing experience of having a mentor working side by side with you instead of just telling you what to do. Matthew 14. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land. They're out on this boat, right? A strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. Now, Charlie talked about lives today and what's happening in our lives and what you might be needing in your life. Anybody here fighting some heavy waves coming around you right now? I mean, it feels like it's going to swamp your boat, like it's going to take over your boat, like your life is going to sink, and you're in the middle of those moments, right? And you have no idea what to do. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, somebody comes walking out on top of the water towards your boat. What are you doing? Screaming? That's a good answer. Because that's probably a very truthful answer. You are rowing as fast the opposite direction as you can possibly go. Is there really somebody there? Is it a ghost? Is it... What is it? Is it a mermaid? Is it a sea monster? Is it you fill in the blank right there, right? You are scared to death at that moment. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. And they cried out, is it a ghost? But Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I'm here. Same thing Jesus wants to say into your life, right? The same thing that you as a mentoring friendship, needs to, need to say into someone else's life. Take courage. Jesus is here with you. We got this. We're going to walk you through this. We're going to be here with you through anything that comes your way, through any storm. And then 
And after that, Peter cried out to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Now, when you find out it's Jesus that's out there, you have a couple of options, right? What do you do? You can paddle the other direction. I've got this. I'm going to get myself out of this. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to be fine. You can sit there and panic and fear and not do anything, or you can get out of the boat. Which person are you in that scenario? All of those are probably okay, because even the person that gets out of the boat has issues. Peter jumps over the edge. This is a massive storm. Waves over your head, crashing all around you. And a guy walking on water out there in the middle of this, he says, come on out to me, Peter. So he jumps over the edge of the boat and he starts walking until what happens? Until he gets afraid, until he realizes what in the heck he's doing. I am out of a boat in the middle of a storm, in the middle of these waves. I can't, I, how am I going to get back in the boat? And he starts looking around and he starts sinking. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reaches out and grabbed him. He says, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? Now, don't miss what's getting ready to happen. That conversation, because Peter got out of the boat, that discipleship mentoring conversation was going to take place later around a fire and some food. So let's talk about doubt. Let's talk about fear. That's how a mentoring relationship works. Open communication about the things that you're dealing with. Look at Mark 14. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy, which means what? means Jesus healed this guy. A disease where he couldn't be around anyone, now he can be around all of his family and friends. He's healed because of what Jesus did for him. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She broke open the jar, poured the perfume over his head. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is in this mentoring type moment in his life. This perfume gets poured over him. It was about a year's wages. How much money do you make in a year? We're going to have different answers in here. 25,000, 50,000, 100,000, 200,000, 400,000. Let's just assume you take your $400,000, you pour it over the head of Jesus. That's what she did. Everything that she had. It was her, it was her yearly, her life savings, whatever it was. She took it, she broke the jar open, and some of the people at the table are just going, why, why are you wasting this expensive perfume? It could have been sold and the money given to the poor. So they scolded her harshly. And Jesus, remember, sitting around a table eating, remember, discipling-type relationship, and he starts to mentor them. And he says, guys, leave her alone. You have no idea what you're in the middle of saying right now, which tends to happen with people that don't have the whole story. You know, these disciples didn't get the whole story. They heard bits and pieces, and, and they saw something, and it made them rile up which wasn't really the truth. And Jesus is getting ready to mentor them to say, listen, what you think you know, you don't really know. Because she's doing something so special for me. She's preparing me for my death, burial, and resurrection. She's preparing me for that. But all you guys see is the money. 
you're too focused on money. Now, we all need money, right? We all need money to live. We all need money for food. We all need money for, for whatever, you know, clothing, those kinds of things. We all, we all need, we need money as a church. We're in the middle of that right now. We all need money. But when that's what you're focused on, the rest of your priorities are so out of whack, Jesus is has, having this, this mentoring moments with his friends. Going, listen, it's not about the stuff. It's about what she's doing to prepare me. He's setting the tone for what they needed, not just what they wanted. And he's setting that tone for them. Here, here Jesus goes on in Matthew 6. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. For if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. All right? Anybody know people that when they give, they make it a big deal? Thank you for giving wherever that is to whoever that is to. Thank you for giving. But if you make it a big deal and you do it in front of other people to be seen by other people, guess what that is? That's what your reward is. You know, it's not a spiritual reward. It's not a heart reward. It's just an outward reward. Be careful. You'll get no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This has nothing to do with secrecy. He's mentoring them. He's saying, listen, don't show off. That's good that your heart is right in giving, but don't show off. People are in need, and you need to help, but it's not about you. It's about them. That's a mentor, friendship-type thing that you need to be passing on and, and living out in your daily lives with the friends around you. And when you pray, Matthew six fifteen, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. You know, do you know people that like to pray big, loud prayers with big, long words? and make themselves a spectacle. You know, I think God blessed me with this. I don't know enough big words to do that, so I don't typically have to worry about that scenario, right? But I've been around a whole lot of people that do. And they want to make themselves look good. They don't want to look like, I, I, I don't know anything. And so sometimes they use big words for that. Sometimes they're just people that are proud and boastful and want to pray the biggest, loudest, mo most, most fluffy kind of prayer possible. And they use words like justified and sanctified and words that, I, again, I don't know what those even mean. But anyway, they use these words and they're trying to, the propitiation of the sanctification of the mercy seat of God. You're going, dude, just say what it is. Say God loves us and he forgives us. But don't use that kind of wording. Why? Because that's all about you. It's not about God and it's not about them. Now, when Jesus is teaching this, he then goes in, being a good mentor, a good discipler, and he says, let's talk about how do we pray. And he opens up conversations about it. He says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your father 
who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. You know the prayer? Did you learn? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some of you learned that in rote memory. Some of you learned that growing up, maybe in a church setting that you grew up in. That's great. But Jesus is going, it's more than that. It's more than just remembering something. It's learning to get to the basics. He's covering our basic needs in that prayer. God, thank you for giving me food. That's my daily bread. God, thank you. You know, Thank you for forgiving me of my sins because we all need that. God, help me to forgive other people around me because we all need to learn how to do that. Jesus is mentoring them as he's talking and he's spending time with them and he's spending time with the people around him because he loves them And he wants to bring them together to grow spiritually. Matthew 17 says this. At the foot of the mountain, a large crowd was waiting for them. A man came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire, into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And Jesus said, you're faithless. You faithless and corrupt people. How long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and the boy and said to him, Be out, and it left him. And from that moment on, the boy was well. After the disciples asked Jesus privately, Why couldn't we cast out that demon? And then he's back into this discipleship, mentoring type relationship. He's spending the time teaching them and walking them through how things are done. He says this. He says, you don't have enough faith. I tell you the truth. If you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move here, move there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. He's saying, listen, you tried to do it on your own. You tried to get rid of this demon on your own. You don't have that kind of power. You have power through me because of me, because of who I am. Count on me to help you do that and it'll be done. That's where the faith comes in. But you don't have enough power on your own. It's all through me. Now, understand this. This wasn't just for Jesus to do this for his disciples. This is for you to do with your friends. This is for you to do with people that maybe you're one step ahead of and you're mentoring them. This is for you as you live your life to bring people alongside of you. Matthew 28 says this. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you know this last part? This is the Great Commission. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you and surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's about us 
being discipled and then making disciples. It's about us being a friend and then helping our friends to get better, to get healthy, to live life well. It's about us being a parent and mentoring and discipling our kids. It's about us being married and mentoring and discipling our spouses together in the name of Jesus so life is good. So what can you do to mentor those around you? Maybe you get the people that you're doing life with and you just serve together. You know, we had Contribute Sunday, which was pretty cool. A lot of us went out and made an impact in our communities, but that needs to be part of our everyday lives. I mean, maybe for you, you need to be comfortable with getting your friends involved in things, serving others, and kind of realizing the value in serving the people around you. Maybe you go and, I don't know, maybe you have somebody that's sick that you know, and so you go and you take this friend with you, and you just spend some time with the person that's sick, or you bring them a bowl of soup. Or you do something for them. Maybe for you, you go and do some yard work for somebody that just had surgery, right? That, that just Maybe they're just in a stage of life where they can't do some things for themselves. Let's just say this afternoon we get three feet of snow. It could happen, right? We're in Ohio. It could happen. What are you going to do? You're going to shovel your driveway. You're going to shovel your sidewalk. How about you grab a couple of friends as you're kind of doing life together and say, hey, let's go take care of this person's driveway and this person's sidewalk. Hey, let's go help this widow who lost her husband six months ago that just has never done this for herself in her life. Let's go take care of that for her. And you start living out those actions in your life. Maybe you just schedule some time for breakfast where you just sit and hang out for a while and you talk about the things in life that are coming up and how to handle those and what a spiritual way to handle those might be, right? One of my favorite scriptures where Jesus is modeling discipleship is Mark 14. I want everybody, if you would, grab some of this communion. It's under the seat racks in front of you, or maybe you grab some when you walked in the door this morning. I want you to grab that and just hold on to this, to this cup for me for just a minute, all right? It's a great moment when Jesus models this for all of us, right? In the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. One of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? He replied, it's the one of you 12 who is eating from this bowl with me for the son of man must die. As the scripture declared long ago, he's preparing them for what's getting ready to happen. That's a mentoring moment but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better that that man had never been born. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. We open the bottom of these cups and pull out the piece of bread that's there and just hold on to that, please. He took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces, and he gave it to the disciples saying this, take it, for this is my body. Don't take it yet. 
because they had no idea what they were doing at this point. No idea whatsoever. They're in a room. They're eating dinner with Jesus. The Passover is getting ready to happen. It's a big moment, and Jesus is mentoring them. Listen, you don't get this right now, but you will because I'm about to die for your sins. Let's take that understanding what Jesus did for us when his body was broken. over and open the juice side of the cup. Jesus gave it to them and they all drank from it and he said to them, this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for many and I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Do you understand what this means? Do you understand what Jesus was modeling to his disciples? Do you understand that the blood of Jesus, because he died for you, because he died a gruesome death for you, that blood covers our sin? I know it's a strange concept. But because he gave up his life, we have life. And that's what this represents. Let's take it together. I want you to close your eyes and just listen to the words of this song. Focus on how much Jesus loves you. Focus on how, as a friend of Jesus, we get to learn these, the, these discipleship things about him because he loves us. He cares about us. Focus on that as we, the band sings this song. 